355, le podcast des rendez-vous littéraires rue Cambon. Elles ont créé avec ardeur et intelligence, bousculé leurs semblables, troublé les hommes et parfois aimé de manière non conventionnelle. Qui sont-elles Je suis Charlotte Casiraghi et je vous propose de partir à la rencontre de ces grandes figures féminines dans une nouvelle série de podcasts intitulée « Les rendez-vous littéraires rue Cambon ». C'est le parcours hors norme de ces femmes d'exception que je vous présenterai dans les mois à venir. L'histoire est l'œuvre de figures dont le souffle créateur continue encore aujourd'hui de nous inspirer. Very honored to be here in London to launch the first rendezvous littéraire rue Cambon in English. And there was no doubt for me that we had to dedicate this rendezvous to Virginia Woolf. I'm thrilled to be today surrounded by Jeanette Winterson, Keira Knightley, and Erica Wagner to speak about such a fascinating woman. It's hard to find the words to introduce Virginia Woolf, this giant of literature who left us a heritage of such crucial importance. Our aim today is not to do an academic lecture. And thanks to Jeanette, we'll have a really fun time. <laughs> and we hope to show you how much of a visionary she was and how much she's relevant today and how she can still help us face many challenges. Virginia Woolf was a fighter. She fought all her life to challenge conventions of her time and defend women's freedom to write and create. She was above all an activist who faced the social, economic, emotional problems that hindered women with unfailing courage. We simply hope you will come out of this encounter with a more open vision of what a woman can be and with an invincible desire for change so that in our world today, women can access their full creative potential and intellectual freedom. Before we start discussing and entering more in depth in Virginia Woolf's work and life, we first wanted to hear her voice. And Kara, we are extremely happy to have you with us today. And you will be reading an extract from Professions for Women, a speech Virginia Woolf gave at the National Society for Women's Service in January 1931. When your secretary invited me to come here, she told me that your society is concerned with the employment of women, and she suggested that I might tell you something about my own professional experiences. It is true I am a woman. It is true I am employed. But what professional experiences have I had? It is difficult to say. My profession is literature, and in that profession there are fewer experiences for women than in any other, with the exception of the stage, fewer, I mean, that are peculiar to women. For the road was cut many years ago by Fanny Burney, by Afra Ben, by Harriet Martineau, by Jane Austen, by George Eliot. Many famous women and many more unknown and forgotten have been before me, making the path smooth and regulating my steps. Thus, when I came to write, there were very few material obstacles in my way. Writing was a reputable and harmless occupation. The family peace was not broken by the scratching of a pen. No demand was made upon the family purse. For ten and sixpence, one can buy paper enough to write all the plays of Shakespeare if one has a mind that way. Pianos and models, Paris, Vienna and Berlin, masters and mistresses are not needed by a writer. 
The cheapness of writing paper is, of course, the reason why women have succeeded as writers before they have succeeded in any other profession. But to tell you my story, it is a simple one. You have only got to figure to yourselves a girl in a bedroom with a pen in her hand. She had only to move that pen from left to right, from 10 o'clock to 1. Then it occurred to her to do what is simple and cheap enough, after all, to slip a few of those pages into an envelope, fix a penny stamp in the corner, and drop the envelope into the red box at the corner. It was thus that I became a journalist. And my effort was rewarded on the first day of the following month, a very glorious day it was for me, by a letter from an editor containing a cheque for one pound, ten shillings and sixpence. But to show you how little I deserve to be called a professional woman, how little I know of the struggles and difficulties of such lives, I have to admit that instead of spending that sum upon bread and butter, rent, shoes and stockings or butcher's bills, I went out and bought a cat. A beautiful cat, a Persian cat, which very soon involved me in bitter disputes with my neighbours. What could be easier than to write articles and to buy Persian cats with the profits? But wait a minute. Articles have to be about something. Mine, I seem to remember, was about a novel by a famous man. And while I was writing this review, I discovered that if I were going to review books, I should need to do battle with a certain phantom, and the phantom was a woman. And when I came to know her better, I called her after the heroine of a famous poem, The Angel in the House. It was she who used to come between me and my paper when I was writing reviews. It was she who bothered me and wasted my time and so tormented me that at last I killed her. You, who come of a younger and happier generation, may not have heard of her. You may know, not know what I mean by the angel in the house. I will describe her as shortly as I can. She was intensely sympathetic. She was immensely charming. She was utterly unselfish. She excelled in the difficult arts of family life. She sacrificed herself daily. If there was chicken, she took the leg. If there was a draft, she sat in it. In short, she was so constituted that she never had a mind or a wish of her own but preferred always to sympathize with the minds and wishes of others. Above all, I need not say it, she was pure. Her purity was supposed to be her chief beauty, her blushes, her great grace. In those days, the last of Queen Victoria, every house had its angel. And when I came to write, I encountered her with the very first words. The shadow of her wings fell on my page. I heard the rustle of her skirts in the room. Directly, that is to say, I took my pen in my hand to write that, that novel, that review, that to write, <laughs> to review that novel by a famous man. She slipped behind me and whispered, my dear, you are a young woman. You are writing a, a, about a book that has been written by a man. Be sympathetic, be tender, flatter, deceive, use all the arts and wiles of our sex. Never let anybody guess that you have a mind of your own. Above all, be pure. And she made as if to guide my pen. I now record the one act for which I take some credit to myself, though the credit rightly belongs to some excellent ancestors of mine who left me a certain sum of money. Shall we say 500 pounds a year? So that it was not necessary for me to depend solely on charm for my living. 
I turned upon her and caught her by the throat. I did my best to kill her. My excuse, if I were to be had up in a court of law, would be that I acted in self-defense. Had I not killed her, she would have killed me. She would have plucked the heart out of my writing. For as I found directly, I put pen to paper, you cannot review even a novel without having a mind of your own, without expressing what you think to be true about human relations, morality, sex. And all these questions, according to the angel in the house, cannot be dealt with freely and openly by women. They must charm, they must conciliate, they must, to put it bluntly, tell lies if they are to succeed. Thus, whenever I felt the shadow of her wing or the radiance of her halo upon my page, I took up the ink pot and flung it at her. She died hard. Her fictitious nature was of great assistance to her. It is far harder to kill a phantom than a reality. She was always creeping back when I thought I had dispatched her. Though I flatter myself that I killed her in the end, the struggle was severe. It took much time that had been better have been spent upon learning Greek grammar or roaming the world in search of adventures. But it was a real experience. It was an experience that was bound to befall all women writers of that time. Killing the angel in the house was part of the occupation of a woman writer. Thank you so much, Kira. That was a really, really wonderful reading. And it is now my pleasure to introduce Jeanette Winterson. There is nothing so wonderful in the world as telling stories, Virginia Woolf wrote. And Jeanette Winterson is a storyteller. That's a good place to start, I think. Her first novel, Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, was published in 1985, and from that moment, the light of her artistry blazed out into the world. The Passion, Sexing the Cherry, The Power Book, Lighthouse Keeping, The Stone Gods, The Daylight Gate, Frankenstein, each one of her books, there are too many to list, and of course they include her extraordinary memoir, Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal, each of her books is an expression of her true being, imagination and language woven together to create works of unique and vibrant beauty. I have been lucky enough to know Jeanette for a very long time, to have been a young writer myself in her company, to have been and continue to be inspired by her. Jeanette is an evangelist for art. <laughs> A woman who knows that art is not optional. She has always known that in our darkest moments, it is art that supports us, that teaches us, that helps us to live with and understand our fellow human beings. And she has lived as boldly as she has written, carving space for herself and showing her readers how they might do the same. She has been made a commander of the Order of the British Empire. Her books win prizes and are bestsellers around the world. She has a new book, 12 Bites, a nuanced examination of humanity and artificial intelligence. She is just as electric a speaker 
as she is a writer, as you are shortly to discover if you do not know already. Her relationship to and with Virginia Woolf, the focus of our literary rendezvous, goes back a great many years. Woolf is a writer she and I have talked about often, a writer who has much to say to us now in the 21st century. I can't wait to hear Jeanette's thoughts, and so without further ado, I cede the floor to her. Thank you, Erica. Oh, my friends, imagine it's 1888 and Virginia Woolf is born. Queen Victoria is on the throne. The clothes that women are wearing are really not designed to do anything except sit down and take tea and flatter great men. Now, Virginia Woolf's father, Sir Leslie Stephen, was a great man. He was the, the compiler, the editor, the driving force behind a terrible piece of work, if you were Virginia Woolf, which was entirely filled with great men. So the ones who weren't coming to tea were in the dictionary. And this was Virginia Woolf's early life. And it's no wonder that she said later on, when she, after her father died, that had he lived, she wrote in her diary, my father's life would entirely have ended mine. And Virginia Woolf, brought up in Hyde Park Gate, um, plenty of money, plenty of status, but neither of her parents believed in education for women, neither of them. So while her brother was sent to school and then on to Cambridge, which was the natural route, Virginia and her sister, Vanessa, later Vanessa Bell, the painter whose work I'm sure you know, sit at Charleston, no, Virginia and Vanessa were schooled at home by their mother. Now, their mother did offer them a wide education. She taught them Latin, she taught them French, she taught them history, and there are many photographs of them in the schoolroom behind the dining room, uh, assiduous at their lessons. And of course, they had the run of their father's library, because whatever else he was, he was a man who loved words, who loved books, and who believed in the, the power of language um, to change, to influence, but also to control. But he gave his two daughters the run of the library. He, did, he put no conditions on it, which Virginia Woolf always said was quite astonishing, given how many conditions were put on women's lives, particularly at that time. But the two young girls were allowed to run free in the library. You know, and as someone, myself, whose early beginnings were entirely centred on the library, in my case, a public library, because we only had six books at home in our house, I know how important that is to be able to run free among books because there is the life of the mind there you may encounter many talents many spirits opinions far different from your own life experiences far different from your own and in this this vast sea of language this these continents of possibility what might you not find what might you not discover and so Virginia Woolf, although deprived of what she later thought was so crucial for women, a formal education, had the run of the house in a very particular way, the run of the house of the mind, and she made the most of it. Now, her mother died when she was 13. This was the beginning of her mental instability. It was very hard for her after that. Her mother um, was gender roles were very specific then. So while her father was the stern, distant patriarch, the man of letters, her mother was not only their teacher, uh, she certainly wasn't their friend because that didn't happen in Victorian households, but she was the compassionate, consoling person. And the loss of her was felt very greatly um, by the developing 
sensitive woman, um, then then called Virginia Stephen, who would in 1912 marry Leonard Wolfe. Um, she wasn't entirely without the prejudices of her time because she said, I'm marrying a penniless Jew. Well, she married him. And theirs was a long and happy and sustained marriage, not one that depended on the modern conventions of romance, but was in fact a, an absolute partnership, which was no doubt important for her mental stability and for her creative life. You know, I had an elderly friend once who said to me, you know, she said, the problem with your generation is you're too romantic. She said, my generation, she said, we didn't prize sexual fidelity, we prized loyalty. You don't leave the marriage, you support one another, and what else you do is your own business. Now, we know that Virginia Woolf, um, although she did not have any affairs with men, we know that she did have an affair with Vita Sackville-West, the, the aristocrat married to Nigel Nicholson, diplomat who also had many affairs with men. This did not spoil Vita's marriage, and it certainly did not spoil Virginia's marriage. However, it was a huge creative impetus for both women. Um, in the 1920s, Virginia Woolf was writing at her best, at the height of her powers. Now, the piece you just heard Kira read, 1931, just remember that that is 90 years ago. And how did it sound today? Did we not all recognise those things that we were hearing? Did it sound like something that was written 90 years ago? No, not at all. Not only because those problems are still prescient, are still with us, are still things that all of us, men and women alike, need, need to grapple with, but because her mind was so ahead of itself, it was so fresh, um, and she saw the world as a whole, as a round. She didn't sectionalise things. So when she was talking about the position of women, we understood that she was really talking about uh, the distortion in humanity, that really, as she says, in other parts of the piece, why should one sex be so prosperous and so secure? And why should the other sex be so poor and so dependent? That is a very good question to ask. And she was asking it. And she was asking it from her own experience, thinking, my brother went to Cambridge. Um, she did not feel herself the lack of, of any education in the obvious sense, what she felt the lack of was that conviviality, that congregation, that conversation that you get when you meet as like minds in a similar place, which is what men have always enjoyed, whether it's been in the private clubs or the universities, or indeed now in the boardrooms, in all the spaces that men still occupy, where they can talk to each other as equals without fear, um, without having to put on a show or a performance. And for many women, of course, putting on a show or a performance is really what they also put on as soon as they finish dressing and doing their makeup. Then it's time to go outside and put on the show and the performance because they cannot feel that they can simply be themselves because in whatever situation that won't be acceptable. Virginia Woolf understood this and she watched her brother and her brother's friends from Cambridge, the Bloomsbury set that grew up around her of which she was uh, an integral part, enjoying that ease and she was very interested in ease. You know, it's that sense of leisure that we heard in the piece that you would need to have just a little bit of time, a little bit of space. It's not just the very famous you know, book that she wrote in 1929, A Room of One's Own. Of course you need a room, of course you need some money in order to do anything. 
You need to be able to shut the door. You need to be able to not worry about the bills being paid. Of course you do. But you also need that sense of community and conversation. That's where ideas begin to spark off one to another. That's where the mind begins to thrive. The mind certainly needs its solitariness. Virginia Woolf knew this as a writer because the writer is the most solitary of creatures. You know, if you can't be on your own, don't be a writer. Hmm? Because that is what you have to do. There's nobody's going to help you. You have to sit by yourself and do it. The end. So she knew that. She understood that. But she also knew how wonderful it was to sit and have these conversations that began trivially, in a trivial enough way. You know, great ideas. People who have great ideas don't just sit around saying, hey, we're having great ideas. You know, they say, oh, the fish is good tonight. What's the wine? How's the weather? Where have you been? Things begin to ease in. And out of that comes all sorts of possibilities, some spark. Women, she said, were cut off from that. They were simply set aside. You know the convention when she was a young woman, that after dinner the men would go into one room and talk about important things, and the women would be set aside, not with port and brandy and cigars, but with fucking cups of tea. Um, you know, I mean, what can you really think about with a cup of tea after dinner? Um, I mean, perhaps some of you do have great ideas with a cup of tea after dinner. I personally do not. And so Virginia Woolf was really championing that those open spaces. It was the open spaces she'd found in her father's library. She knew that the life of the mind, the imaginative life that she talked about, is a wide open space. And that's what she wanted for women. She did not want women to be enclosed or constricted. She admired her friend Vita Sackville-West, not only because she dressed well and seemed to have an innate sense of style, which Virginia thought she never had. Indeed, you know, the 20s said that Virginia came in looking like she was wearing an upturned waste paper basket on her head. So she had problems with the trappings of being a woman, um, which many women did. She did not have any problems uh, with the sense of the life of the mind um, or where it needed to go in order to do its best, in order not to be constrained. Now, Professions for Women, 1931, so 90 years ago, before that, she'd gone up to, to Cambridge and delivered the lecture that became A Room of One's Own, 1929. She delivered it in two parts, uh, at Newnham and at Girton, the new women's colleges. Finally, women were allowed to go to Cambridge, study for a degree, though they were not awarded degrees at Cambridge till 1948. Just get your heads around that, boys and girls. 1948, Cambridge did not think that it was fit to give degrees to women, even though they could study at these two colleges. Um, and these were rather desperate colleges. Some of you will have been to Cambridge, some of you will have known Newnham and Girton. They smelled of lino and cabbage. Hmm? And the men's colleges were all good wine, good food, claret, opulence, relaxation, pleasure, room for the life of the mind. The women were told they must study hard, work hard. They didn't have time to buy nice clothes. They certainly didn't have time to buy wine. Um, they must only concentrate on what they had. So when Virginia Woolf accepted that invitation to talk about A Room of One's Own, the lectures that became A Room of One's Own, where she said, listen, writing is practical. The things that we do, creativity is a practical thing. It, there's nothing that is airy-fairy about creativity. You need space to do it. You need money to do it. You need time to do it. You know, it's like people who stress about the polar bears. All you have to do to protect a polar bear is protect the ice flow. Give it the environment, the polar bear is fine. Hmm? It's the same with creativity. You create the right conditions and creativity flourishes. And women had not had 
still do not have the right conditions. That is all that is needed for the life of the mind to flourish. Nothing particular, nothing special, just the right environment, which we're becoming more aware of as we, as we collapse in, into planetary catastrophe. But Virginia Woolf wanted to be and was a pioneer, both for the life of the mind and how that might really be made more relevant, more accessible, more possible for women. This great creative period of her life uh, through the 20s, up through 1931, where she wrote Professions for Women, has as its, I suppose, its jewel in the crown, 1928, when she wrote Orlando, which was a, it's been called the longest love letter in history, which she wrote for Vita Sackville West, who liked to cross-dress. So sometimes she'd go out as Vita, and in the evening she might go to the opera as Julian, uh, in a perfectly tailored Savile Row suit with her lover, Violet Trefusis. So Vita would not be constrained. Virginia loved that about her. She loved the fact that she lived at Knoll at the time, this vast house with 365 rooms, not in any sense constrained. Um, and out of that lack of constraint, written in six weeks, came Orlando. She said, I've written it at the top of my speed. And it was, it was a love letter to Vita, but it was also a love letter to life. Um, and from that came her idea that the great mind is androgynous, i.e. that it should not be binary, it should not be gender bound, it should not be the preserve of one sex and not the preserve of another. Um, really, she was wondering, what is it about a penis that is so special? And it was a reasonable question to ask. You know, it has its virtues, but it should not affect the life of the mind. So that was what Virginia Woolf was considering. How can women, uh, who at least at last have been able to write novels, if nothing else, how can they push forward into every other aspect of life? And you know, and it's in a room of one's own that she has the terrible story of Shakespeare's sister. And she said, Shakespeare had a sister as talented as he, as ambitious as he, um, as full of energy and spirit as he. But what would have happened? Well, it's three days journey then from Stratford to London. Just bear in mind, that's like going to New Zealand. Okay, you know, people often say, why didn't Shakespeare go home? You say, dude, it's three days. You know, so it's like, going, I'm going home to New Zealand for the weekend. No, you're not. So she had to make the three day journey from Stratford to London, Shakespeare's sister. When she got there, she couldn't go on the stage because women weren't allowed on the stage. She couldn't hold the horses outside the stage door like Shakespeare did. Or if she did, she was hanging outside the stage door. What happens? Somebody's nice to her. He says, come home with me. I'll give you some supper. You're starving. The next thing she's in bed with him and she's pregnant. The end. So what she's saying is look at the conditions. She was such a practical person. And this is not the image often that we have of her. Absolutely practical. Let's get this stuff published. Let's control the means of production, just like Marx said we should. You know, let's not sit here waiting for other people to tell us what we can say and how we can say it and whether they'll publish or not. Let's do it. Highly practical woman. Looking always for the situations for women um, where they could become women in their full right, in their full capacity, where they could know what it was, what it is to be a woman, unfettered, unchained by so many of the obligations, uh, considerations that dog a woman's life. You know, and the angel in the house, only one of them. But we were talking earlier, weren't we, and saying, the angel in the house is a woman. And very often it's from other women that we internalise the toxicity of oppression, whether it's from our mothers, where it can be anything, how you should behave, how you should look, what you should do, who you should be. You know, what she's killing in this murder story, and it is a murder story, is another woman, not a male figure, a woman.
And so what we should think about when we think about Virginia Woolf, uh, her, her consequences, uh, her legacy, is really she's, she's many things. She's a lighthouse. She's warning us of where the rocks are. She's also showing us where the light is and reminding us that often the things that we have internalized uh, from out there, whether it's the patriarchy or not, many women are in the surface of the patriarchy. Um, it is often from other women that we get our severest criticism and our least praise. And, you know, Madeleine Albright was right, wasn't she, when she said there's a special place in hell for those women who don't support other women. And we're, we're here today, and what I would like to end on, really, with my thoughts about Virginia Woolf, is that we are here to support one another, to make possibilities for one another, to open the space as she opened the space. Whatever chance, whatever opportunity you get, you know, for young women to go out there and open the space, clear the road, use your privilege, use your power. There's nothing wrong with privilege and power as long as you use it in the service of good. And that's what Virginia Woolf was saying. She had 500 pounds a year. She had a room of her own. She knew that she was better off than most women, but she didn't sit with it. She used it. She was practical. She was active. She was an activist. She was Virginia Woolf. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jeanette, for that wonderful talk. And now we're going to have some discussion around the subject of Virginia Woolf, around the angel in the house, which I might return to. It's fascinating what you say, Jeanette, about which I realize I hadn't recognized that the first time I read this piece, that it was about killing another woman. Yep. And it's so obvious when you say it, and it hits you kind of in the in the heart. And I'd like to begin by asking first Charlotte and then asking Kira about your personal response to this piece. Again, I think it's so correct that it doesn't sound like it was written and published 90 years ago, nearly a century ago. So I wonder how it first struck you, Charlotte, when you read it. When I read it, actually, it I was really feeling like um, it was what I needed to hear. Like it was exactly the truth about what we're still struggling with. Um, and even though we're very privileged, we have many opportunities to express ourselves. But I feel that the hardest part is the internalization of certain conventions, norms, perceptions that are so deeply rooted inside us that it takes probably a lifetime to, <laughs> to overcome them. And I think what really spoke to me in, that, um, in her speech is, as you were saying, that the angel in the house is a woman. And it's about killing the mother in a way, not your own mother, but the archetype of the devoted mother, the sacredness of the devotion and the purity of that devotion. And it's something that terrifies all of us, that we need to believe that that devotion is untouchable, impossible to, to fail. But what Virginia Woolf 
tells us, but maybe she tells it in other pieces like Into the Lighthouse or other of her novels, is that that figure, that sacredness of the mother, she is always failing because she can, her role is to stop chaos and death, but she's always going to fail because there's always going to be chaos and there's always going to be death at some point. And I feel that why Virginia Woolf became such a great writer in a way is because she lost her mother at a very yes. crucial age and that it gave her a certain freedom to be herself. And that's what really um, touched me when I read it. And I feel that we're still struggling with that. And it's not necessarily the relationship you have with your own mother. It's more with the symbol of what a good mother should be and that haunts us all. <laughs> and that was something of what we were all discussing beforehand. You read that so wonderfully, Kira, and with such passion. And I just wonder how, and indeed in preparing to do this, how you respond to that piece, particularly, what struck you about it? Well, I, I found this piece very interesting because actually Charlotte had sent me quite a few pieces, right? And, and we were sort of discussing quite a number of different pieces to read. And both of us uh, really honed into this one. And it was interesting how we did because we're both the mothers of very young children. And although Virginia Woolf was not a mother herself, the way that I read it when I first read it was absolutely the angel in the house as far as how you're meant to be as a mother and the constant failure and the constant voice on your shoulder of how you're not doing it right. So what I find interesting about all of Virginia's, uh, Virginia Woolf's work that I've read is that you can take it to mean so many different things. You know, obviously she was not talking about motherhood when she wrote this, this particular essay. And yet for me and Charlotte, with the particular things that we're kind of coming up against now and particularly being working mothers, you know, it, it came to mean something that was very, very, very personal to us. And I, I think that's true of all of her writing, which is why I, I sort of, I, I love it so much, um, but particularly this one. She writes about this idea, she uses the word pure. Mm. And Jeanette, I'd like to turn to you and perhaps ask you to interrogate this word a little bit more as she uses it. In your talk, you were discussing the nature of her marriage, the nature of her relationships, and maybe you could expand a little on how ideas of purity were damaging to women as they tried to develop themselves. Mm. I mean, it's the, it's the fetish with chastity, isn't it? Because men, of course, well, they can now, but they could never be sure that the child was actually theirs, whereas the woman knows absolutely whether she's given birth or not. Um, so the real terror that this child might not be yours it really begins to spark off the whole business of, well, women must be chaste, um, women must only have sex within in the marriage bond. Uh, certainly the children must be part of it. And purity for the Victorians was such a big deal. Uh, I mean, they, they worshipped the idea of the pure woman, which of course they immediately split into a binary so that you had the pure woman and the fallen woman. So it's, it's the Madonna and the whore. You know, they loved binaries, the Victorians, couldn't get enough of them. Um, so it was really clear which side was which uh, and they must not get muddled up. Men, of course, could move easily between these two spheres because 
they could have the pure wife uh, and no doubt pure mother to visit on a Sunday at home and then they could whiz out and have their mistresses or, or their, their ladies of pleasure and nobody was really worried about that so they took for themselves as she said men give themselves in the piece that you read the utmost license but their conventionality of mind means that they cannot grant this to women and that there are severe punishments should they do so so in in, in the whole sphere of morality you have to remember that at this point in time, you know, women are still legally the property of men uh, in the sense that getting a divorce, although it was possible, you know, it was absolutely terrible. So you were going to lose your children, you were going to lose everything. You didn't have your own money. You didn't have, you, know, you couldn't go out and get another job. You couldn't support yourself. So what, what, what has happened in the patriarchal view there is the consequences of not behaving in the way that was prescribed were so immense, which is often hard for young people to realise now, that they can say, oh, I'm leaving you, I'll be a single mother, I'm going to go and get a job, I'll get a flat by myself. None of this possible. You know, so we have, we have made huge progress in terms of women's rights. Those progress is being pushed back now, I fear. But for Virginia Woolf, the idea of that, that purity of purpose, which was a moral purity, she felt really inhibited um, the imaginative freedom that a creative person needed just to be able to roam about. And that's what she does discuss so much in Orlando, the 1928 novel. Orlando begins as a young nobleman in the reign of Elizabeth I. Um, and by some extraordinary event, never explained, because she doesn't need to explain it, uh, he turns into a woman at the age of 30 in Turkey and then discovers that simply because he is a woman, he is immediately disbarred from owning any property, um, from having any profession, from doing anything at all. He can't even go through the door except sideways because the clothes are so ridiculous. And so what she does by doing this, so this is what happens when this, this simply by a change of sex. Um, she was really trying to explore that for women, forced down, pushed down into this idea of the, the pure mind, the pure heart, the pure body. What on earth can you do with that? Absolutely nothing. Um, so it's that way of trying to push through it. And of course, it, she did push through it. She did break through it. But you know, when we think about professions for women, 1918 universal suffrage in England is only for women over 30 who have a small property qualification. It's not till 1928 that every woman can vote on the same terms as men. This is so, you think about the time she's writing in, that's why it's so important to locate things historically. Um, these very different expectations from, for, for the male, for the female, which could do nothing but inhibit not only the creative process, but every other process. You know, there was even a special disease invented for women, actually two years before Virginia Woolf was born, called anorexia scholastica. And it only applied to women, and you got it if you studied maths, <laughs> or actually philosophy. Um, <laughs> Boys didn't get it, only women could get it because, of course, the doctors were following the science and it just meant that you were, if, you, if you were a woman who wanted to study, lo and behold, this would be your fate. And it had terrible consequences, anorexia scholastica. You became infertile, hysterical, unmanageable and eventually insane. So I wish I were making this up, but I'm not. But that is the Victorian world, and those are the expectations on the Victorian woman. So the word pure for her means something very different to a water filter. And that connects to the next issue that I wanted to raise, and which is of the second problem 
that she says she does not solve. And you and I, Charlotte, were discussing this before. And this sentence really jumped out at me towards the end of this piece. But the second, telling the truth about my own experiences as a body, I do not think I solved. And what struck me about that is the sentence could have been and would make sense if it was just but the second, telling the truth about my own experiences, I do not think I solved. But she includes as a body. And I wonder what you think, Charlotte, about the the struggles that women still face in telling the truths about our bodily selves, ourselves as we move in the physical world, and how that is still different for women than it is for men. Well, I think that there's been a lot of progress where there's a much more open space to talk about uh, or express uh, the truth about our own bodies. But I still think that there are a lot of subjects that are extremely difficult to talk about and, uh, and that are absolutely not uh, um, where you find it very difficult to express them. Uh, and I was thinking of just talking about, for we, I'm going back to <laughs> being a mom, but just so many things you go through uh, when you give birth or, or, or things that happen to your body that are extremely difficult to express and that feel like they're, it's not that it's not acceptable, but it goes back to the angel in the house where you mustn't distort that image of the devoted woman, the devoted mother. And the experience of the body tells us that impurity, that that struggle, that where the body speaks actually about the struggle and about the mm. impurity. And that's mm. why it's so difficult to talk about it and why a lot yeah. of men don't want to hear about it because it's just too disgusting and, and too, gives too much anxiety and that it's just difficult to talk about certain things. Uh, that seem, of course, that we have the space today, but that are still very, I find, difficult to be heard and there are many many subjects that I find difficult to express and that if you express them you're considered a bad mother or or I don't know or or where you feel judged mm. you know or, or the number of women that had for example miscarriages or things that seem very banal but that are mm. actually very difficult experiences of the body, but that are silenced that you just never will talk about. There isn't space mm. for yeah. those conversations. Mm. Yeah. And I, I wonder, Kira, it makes me think about your experience in your work, because you are someone who works with your body, I mm. would say, your body moving in, in physical space. And if you've thought about the difference, how it is for men and for women, even today, as Charlotte was saying, things have come on so far. But how you tell that truth, both with your words and with your physical expression. Well, um, is it different for men than for women? Yes. 
uh, I mean, a woman is still expected to be tantalizing. A woman is still expected to be attractive. A woman is still expected, and, and attractiveness looks a certain way. Um, so I, I think still very much today, and particularly in what I do, you know, if you are playing the heroine of a film, you are expected to look a very particular way. And Jesus, most of the time, I don't even look that way, you know. Uh, so, so I think that there is, yeah, there's absolutely, there's, there's, still, uh, there's still a great difference between the way a male heroine, male heroine, that's good, isn't it? A male, that would be quite good. A male hero can look to a, to a female heroine. Um, definitely. I want to talk a bit about Virginia Woolf's style as a novelist, because this wonderful essay is so clear and so plain, but she was a really radical writer in her structure, the way that she constructed her books. And I'd like to touch on really how important she was in building the idea of modernism, in really bringing literature forward. I'll start with you, Jeanette, to discuss her not just politically, but in her literary experimentalism. Mm. And I think there we have to root her also in what we know as the Bloomsbury Group uh, and their, their, their sense of the visual arts, which was a great part, I think, of her method. Um, it, it, there's all we, poor students having to study her now. I didn't because, of course, when I was at Oxford, she wasn't deemed to be of sufficient merit to be on the syllabus of what should have been one of the best English courses in the world. Um, but you had to take her as a special paper, and that was in the 1980s, folks. But you know, we're past all that now, um, so she's got she's got past the marginalisation period. But what she was doing—it's not not enough to talk about stream of consciousness, whatever. She was trying to get what she thought of as the as at, at real truth, so that if you think of the iceberg, the surface of all our lives is just the top of it, and underneath is everything else. And she was completely uninterested in, in the achievements of the Victorian novel, and you can't really blame her, because quite a lot of them were three volumes. They had a lot more leisure time in the Victorian era. Um, she didn't want to do that. She didn't want to do life as it is lived. She didn't want to do experience in that sense. She, did, she wanted to go underneath all of those things, into the fragments, uh, into the places which don't yield so easily um, to confident, simple sentences, to paragraphs that build into stories, to stories that build into lives. She was always looking for the breakages and the fissures, because I think I in her own mind, she knew the breakages and the fissures. But also, one of her great friends was Roger Fry, the art critic, and he brought over to London at the Grafton Galleries, where, for the first time, uh, the British, who were really really having rubbish at visual art, were confronted with these astonishing paintings by Matisse and Cezanne and Picasso. And indeed, the critic of the time said that he thought the frames were worth more than the pictures. Um, because they didn't represent anything. You know, the British loved representational art. They loved representational in anything. If it was a picture of a horse um, or a nude, that was all good. But if it wasn't, if it was something that seemed to offer something else, something that was trying to get under the world of, of surfaces into what we might think of as a psychological reality, you think of those Picasso portraits uh, where the eyes might be on the same side. So it's, it's really trying, trying to get at a, a reality 
reality which is beneath the shapes, the 3D dimensions, the surface world that we live. And she was fascinated by this and many conversations about it with Roger Fry and, of course, her sister, the painter, Vanessa Bell, who later took up with Duncan Grant, um, about how you do represent reality. Um, and whether indeed it is best served by a story with a beginning, a middle and an end, because actually nobody lives their life like that. It's complete and utter bollocks. And so she thought, no, I won't do that. Um, I will try to show things in their shifting shapes without obvious endings, never the Hollywood ending, never the closure, um, not using the structures of the marvellous capacities of the Victorian novel which we all love it's why it, it communicates so well to television because you know exactly where you are at any given moment the impressionistic quality of Virginia Woolf doesn't communicate so well much more difficult but yet we all recognize that as part of the truth of our lives don't we we sense ourselves in those fissures in those fragments in those lacunae in the interstices, in the gaps you know in the moments where we fall down the hole and drag ourselves up again all of that and each of you here in this room lives perpetually in three time zones you think about the past you're managing the present you're wondering about the future this is your simultaneous reality you're not linear time for you is not linear Time for you is significant. Your memories do not lie next to each other in chronological order. No, not at all. And this is what Virginia Woolf wanted to delve into. She wanted to show how the mind itself, the most complex object in the known universe, does not manage linear time very well at all. And there is indeed, isn't there, um, into the lighthouse, that marvellous section called Time Passes, where she simply comes out of the story of the Ramses and talks about the effect of time on this house, whether it's the ivy growing up the wall, whether it's the damp coming in from the rainy autumn nights. All of the things which actually do constitute the material reality but which are often overlooked and yet those things you know you suddenly glance at it a patch of damp a bit of ivy it will conjure a memory a smell Proust was good at that something that takes you out of this moment into another moment that is the life of the mind not the beginning the middle and the end and that's what she wanted to show that connects me to something that you and I were talking about last night to dinner, Charlotte. And that can be the way in which, perhaps, we could describe Virginia Woolf's fiction as challenging or not necessarily easily accessible. You were talking about returning to it after a while and having to work your way back into it. And I'd, I'd like you to say a little about that for our audience because it was I think people will find it very encouraging yeah well everyone knows Virginia Woolf very few people have actually read her novels and and it's understandable because she's a, a difficult writer it takes time to enter her novels and to pursue the the reading, it's, it, it requires a huge amount of concentration and she tries to create a dizziness as well uh, with several voices and sometimes you get lost and you don't know who's speaking and, mm. and you feel claustrophobic and you're like, I just don't understand what's happening anymore. And actually, it took me time to really go back to her writings and I had a different approach meaning that I felt like it was 
pure poetry and that you could actually read her as poetry and not necessarily in a linear mm. way. And that's why I feel people should know that and not think, okay, I have to start a novel of Virginia Woolf and I have to go through the whole novel and keep the focus. And then after 10 pages, it's difficult. But you can also just read some pages. Yes. And like Mrs. Dalloway, you have some pages, some descriptions of London, some parts of it that are just so strong in the sensation you mm. get. And even if you don't understand everything, it's just pure beauty. And that's yes. why you should, people should not be afraid of Virginia Woolf. <laughs> I want to have one mm. final question um, about Virginia Woolf before we're going to turn a little bit to you, Jeanette, and your process oh, of yeah. writing. <laughs> but one more thing, and you touched on this, um, Jeanette, in your talk, but something that struck me very much in the reading was her acknowledgement of her own privilege, mm. which I think is something that we all can tend to think is a very contemporary discussion. We're all really considering privilege now, who has it and who doesn't. But again, nearly a hundred years ago, she was already aware of her extreme good fortune. And she was talking to a group of women who were very different than she was. And she was willing to acknowledge that difference, but speak openly to them. And can I ask you first, Jeanette, perhaps to say a little bit more about that, and then I'll turn to, to Kira and yes, to Charlotte. Yes, I think I, part of the, I think it was, I think it was patriarchal propaganda, actually, in the years, because I'm thinking of myself arriving in Oxford in the 1980s, and this awful uh, image of Virginia Woolf as being a rather invalidish, um, bloodless, ivory tower writer um, who actually couldn't construct a story. Um, and really couldn't manage to write a proper novel um, and was, in every sense, the woman writer, which, of course, was a term of contempt in itself, without at all realising, as was then I began to discover more of her for myself because I just did, didn't trust any of those guys. I thought, oh, it's not, this is not right, it can't be. And beginning to discover simply by reading her, her, her true, her bright democratic spirit in the full sense, uh, both the curiosity um, of wanting to know about people's lives, but also the sense of her own limitations. She, you know, she, often, she says in her diary often, I'm not going to write about minors. It's after she'd, she'd been out with D.H. Lawrence and she said, I'm not a minor son and I don't know what a minor has for supper. And actually, I don't want to know. I mean, she was a frightful snob in some ways. Um, she was wasn't interested in mince and potatoes, but she was also she was very interested in the sense of how other lives were lived that were not hers, even if she wasn't going to write about them. She still wanted to value them, to empower them, and that's why she gave so many speeches. She went to women's guilds, women's institutes, women's colleges, schools. She was really tireless um, in her own propaganda effort. Um, 
always to say, you know, wherever you are now, you could be somewhere else and you're at the beginning of something extraordinary. She did understand that after universal female suffrage votes for women, that thing, things would begin to accelerate forward, that women would begin to enter all of the professions, as she talks about in, in, in professions for women, that women would be everywhere. And they needed to prepare psychologically for this. She was very wise. She knew it wasn't just simply removing the barriers and there you go, everything's fine. She knew that centuries, centuries of psychological pressure were on women's minds. Every woman, no matter how free she seemed, was still a victim and really a victim of the pressure, you know, the angel in the house pressure, ideas about women. And we're still there. We haven't come to the surface yet. The point is that there are huge swathes of the world where women are simply not even as free as they were when Professions for Women was written in 1931. And this, this is not acceptable. And that's what I mean. About, she was a tireless pioneer. Um, and that, that, that is why all of us who have any platform whatsoever just need to keep calling it out and saying this is not acceptable. And I wonder, Kira, and again, just hearing you read it, she both is able to acknowledge her own privilege, but also talk, as Jeanette was just saying, about the situation that women are in. And I wonder how you, know, how you have thought about that issue given that we are women who have a platform and, and how we can use that platform. And I mean, in, in a very similar way that, that Jeanette just said, I mean, I think you absolutely have to acknowledge it. I mean, it, it, it's unavoidable, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but you can equally say, you know, do I still believe that a woman should be paid the same amount as a man? Yes. Do I still believe that a woman should have the right to choose? Yes. And are there many places in the world where she doesn't have the right to choose for her own body? There are. Um, so, you know, I think I can speak from a place of immense privilege, but still say that the, uh, the, the problem for women is, is one for all of us, that there, there are obviously specific needs in different places, but as far as equal pay, as far as the right to choose go, um, I think that we can all be sort of on a similar footing in that. Mm. And equal pay in Britain, it's not till the 1970s. You know, I mean, uh, you, couldn't, you couldn't get a mortgage in your own right in Britain until the mid-1970s if you were a woman. You couldn't open a bank account on your own in the 1970s if you were in the 1970s. You know, we think all of that is so far away, so far gone, but it really isn't. These things are fragile, and if we do not work to keep them, um, then these things could easily disappear, as they are in America with Roe versus Wade. I want to spend our last uh, 10 minutes or so um, asking Jeanette some questions. And also, I, I would say to, to both of you um, that if you have questions for Jeanette, you must pitch in too. Oh, so no. <laughs> but you were telling me earlier, um, and you touched on, your first encounter with Virginia Woolf. She wasn't on the syllabus when you went to study no. at Oxford. So how did you first come across her work? In the public library, um, because we, we had no books at home. My family were religious, and uh, for different reasons, uh, they were suspicious of education for women, even then, because I was meant to be a missionary, which I am. So they got what they wanted. Um, <laughs> you, but, you know, you should be careful what you wish for. So it was really in the public library, which is an old-fashioned, properly 
stocked public library in this crummy northern town, uh, a mill town uh, in the north of England. And I used to go there. Um, and I had, like Virginia Woolf, had free reign. And there really was this massive, massive section at the back which said English literature in prose A to Z. And I thought, what shall I do? And I thought, I'll start at A. That's good. And actually, at the beginning, it's all right, because you get Austin, the Brontes, and you get Conrad, Dickens, George. It's really good. Um, and by the time I got to N, I got to Nabokov, and I thought, nope, something's gone wrong. Something's gone wrong. <laughs> What's the matter with this man? Although I didn't know about feminism then. So I was really working my way through, doggedly, week in, week out, down the sections. Um, and just trying to... For me, as a poor girl, an adopted child, um, you know, my dad left school at 14. And, uh, we didn't have very much, but there was everything. You know, it, it, that was a magic carpet. And I didn't think of myself as a poor girl from the north of England. I thought I was Aladdin. I thought I was Huck Finn. I thought that anything I could imagine, uh, I could be. And those books in the library taught me early on that if you can read yourself as a fiction, as well as a fact, you're free. Because it's not just your CV, it's not your biology, it's not your destiny, it's not the story of your life, it's what you can invent. And I thought, I'll invent myself. I don't have to stay in this northern town, I don't have to work in Woolworths, um, I don't have to do anything they tell me, I'll think of a better story. Because, you know, that was early on, but I knew that if I could, I could change the story, um, I would get free. And so I used the power of language and of books to get myself out. And Virginia Woolf was an early part of that. I didn't understand her. I didn't know who she was. That doesn't matter. You know, there's all this rubbish now about you have to read something to do with your own life in some way. Really not. You know, it's, it was Virginia Woolf who thought so much that life was about the imagination, not just about experience. You know, and I am in a sort of... Uh, lamentation state at the moment because women's fiction has gone back to experience because surely there has to be more than stories about what I do with my friend um, really you know the, the life of the mind does matter and it is what we can imagine it is what we can invent it should be the mind should be an unbounded condition and that's what Virginia Woolf imagined it could be, that you, you would have in, in here, in this prison made of bone, is the, is the most expansive place that I can inhabit. So that was it for me. And I thought, right, um, the rest of it is just window dressing. I might be poor, um, I might be adopted, I might be northern, I'm all, but it doesn't matter because I can, I can move it. And I, I thought it was that sense that reality isn't really fixed, which she's so good at, and that it is a construct. And actually, you don't need to be so bowed down by the conditions that you have. But there are certain conditions in our lives that we can change, um, not so much through an effort of will, but by realising that the prison doors are open and we can walk out. Very often, the angel in the house, we make our own prisons, don't we? And for me, writing has always been about either discovering how to pick the lock and escape when they're all asleep, or realizing that the door isn't closed at all. And that is very often the case, particularly for women, because of our in, in, internalized pressure. The stories that we tell ourselves, the terrible stories that women tell to other women and to ourselves, you know, those stories are no good. 
And really, it doesn't matter that Virginia Woolf was a, a privileged white woman writing in a particular way. The power of her imagination came in and freed me, which is why we must not force our young people into things which we think will interest them or things that they'll like or things that are about them. Not at all. Once something sparks the imagination, anything can happen. And how did you yourself really begin to find the space First you were reading, mm. and then you came to write. And I'm very struck by the image that is, is in the professions of women of a writer as a fisherman or a fisherwoman. She comes to that image a lot. Yeah. It's in a room of one's own as well. She likes the idea of the, the endlessly moving water and casting the rod and wondering if you'll hook a fish. And of course, the fish then being startled by something and you lose it, it slips away. Because we all know that, don't we? We have the most brilliant idea in the world uh, and then it slips away. Um, how she would have managed during the age of emails and constant interruption, I do not know. This, you know, this isn't the best time ever for the life of the mind because we're always distracted, you know, and it's these weapons of mass distraction that make it so difficult just to find that open space that the mind loves. Because when we think of leisure time, we think, oh, what can I do? I've got Saturday off, right, I'll go swimming, then I'll make lunch, uh, then maybe we'll have a walk with the dogs and I'll call some friends and then I might do supper uh, and then maybe we'll go out to a movie. And we think of that as our leisure time, but it's not because it's completely full. So really she was saying, can you just have a day where you don't do anything at all? And she said, you know, often you know, the mind looks around and, and doesn't do anything. And that, that really does matter. It really does matter that if you're creating, it doesn't matter about whether it's writing or anything else. You have that time for the mind, which really is not a utilitarian product. It's an anti-product. You know, anything that's creative is an anti-product because it can't ever be done on deadline. It can't be done according to specification. It can't be done the way other people want it. You know, it's so, so reluctant to follow any rules and prescriptions, which is why writer's courses are so rubbish. Um, what you really have to do is just allow it to dream. You know, that dreaming mind will... will, will it will find something which is worthwhile, but we're terrified of it. And also, we're judgmental. We think, oh, I'm not busy. I'm not doing anything. What's the matter with me? Um, whatever your creative impulses are, if you can get away from your busyness, um, I think your life will go a lot better. Unfortunately, I'm not, you know, being an analogue human, none of, that, none of the, the, the weapons of mass distraction were available to me, and I was often quite bored, which is good for a child. Nothing to do. And so do you think, because I also think of you, you are someone who's very interested in technology. I you're am. very good with technology. You're also good. If someone gives you a deadline, you'll meet the deadline. Mm. Um, but do you think that you were lucky then to, to grow up? You know, you've come to that later in your life. But yeah. kind of what advice would you give to perhaps younger people to carve that space? That's I think they're beginning the to realise it, aren't they, Erica? I mean, with your son and you, you, your children are younger. But there's a sense, really, that young people are learning to turn it off, isn't there? They're beginning to realise that actually this, this, this is offensive and that it gives them no space which isn't mediated space, no space where they're not on show in, in some particular way or chasing likes uh, or being judged. I do think 
that is important, that we, we have time when we just turn it off. And perhaps it's easier if you're older to know that, um, to try and end the day uh, or whatever it is, or not even start the day. I never switch it on in the morning because it's pointless. Your whole day is ruined. You know, I like to work in the morning now. As I've got older, I used to work all through the night. Now I work in the morning. So the thing is, I see, I think of it as a 3D presence. And I think I'm going to work. So even you, my dear friends today, would I let you into my studio when I'm working? No, I wouldn't. So why am I switching? my phone on what is the matter with me and all these unwanted guests are suddenly piling into my studio um, they are not welcome this is a new version of the angel in the house um, um, many dark angels piling in uh, with, with, with the buzzfeed with the attention seeking with people trying to get stuff off this and we cannot have it I mean look Partly, I think we're in a, an evolutionary moment for Homo sapiens. I really do. We've been doing this for 300,000 years, and actually, we've run out of steam. Either we're going to crash the planet or we're going to evolve. And I think that will become part of the transhuman journey. So we will embrace technology. It will become us in a different way. But this is a really messy period um, where a lot of what makes us beautifully, insanely human, you know, our creative self, the mind that is continually able to both process data but also to slim it down into the most perfect ideas. We're losing that, and I'm sorry. You know, I would like... I always say to kids, you know, that I'm teaching, um, just stop panicking, um, stop setting deadlines, and go, just go for a walk and think about what interests you. Not about what panics you, not about what you've got to do, just about what interests you. And this, of course, panics them even more. <laughs> but you have to get into the practice, I would say. Yeah, because like we said, Virginia was practical. You know, she's always offering advice to writers. She's saying you do need a room of your own, you do need a bit of leisure, you do need a bit of money. Actually, you do need a nice bottle of wine and a good dinner. There's a lovely bit in a room of one's own where she's had this opulent dinner at one of the men's colleges, probably King's Cambridge, and then she goes to Girton and has this really miserable lunch. And she says that there's a lamp at the base of the spine and she says that lamp at the base of the spine does not light up for beef and prunes and it doesn't you know a certain amount of leisure is good for us all and we don't need to apologize for it it's absolutely fine take your time in the sun when you can get it don't apologize um, you have a mind you have a body which needs to be fed and nurtured and nourished in many ways and if you want to live the creative life then I'm afraid that means quite a lot of time spent apparently doing absolutely nothing thank you so much Jeanette and we've come nearly to the end of our time, but we're here with Chanel. And I want to close out, uh, Charlotte, before I hand the floor briefly back to you. Um, I think of Virginia Woolf as a very elegant writer and someone with a unique elegance. Jeanette, you, um, you mentioned uh, the image of her coming in with a, looking like she had a lampshade. Um, on I know. Her head. I think they were very particular at Vogue. But it's a, but it's to me, it's a more profound kind of elegance than that. And I, I wonder how that elegance speaks to you, Charlotte. Well, I would say that in a way, elegance. Um, I would relate it as well to a French word, la délicatesse, and it's being sensitive to the different variations and tonalities and being able to go from one to the other in a very smooth way. And I think that was one of her mm. highest qualities mm. of, of being able to uh, 
never, never in a in a harsh way. There was always that gentleness that made her very elegant. I find. But well, that's my personal yes, interpretation yes. of her elegance. Thank you so much, Charlotte. I will thank all of you, but I will turn turn back to you to close out our wonderful rendezvous, which it's been such a such a delight to participate in. Well, thank you all for being here, and it was such a, an amazing moment, and I wish we could have even continued. And listening to you, Jeanette, is just like time stops, and it's great. Thank you so much. Merci d'avoir écouté cet épisode des Rendez-vous littéraires Cambon, un podcast de la Maison Chanel. Thank you.